Well, as you can see, I am not Pastor Josh, right? Uh, there's about a foot of difference and a lot of red hair up here. So there's a little bit of a difference there. But if you would turn in your Bibles to John 13, uh, I'll have you stand here in a minute. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak. I uh, want to thank Pastor Josh, even though he's not here, he's preaching away. But I don't take it lightly to be able to be in his pulpit. Um, I know there's a lot of weight that comes with that, and I'm thankful for the opportunity. So if you'll turn your Bibles to John 13, while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about the Gospel of John. Um, John is a unique Gospel, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's known as the Synoptic Gospels, which just means they're similar or they're seen together. Um, And I can kind of get to this since everybody's standing. We'll go ahead and read. It's all right. It's fine. No big deal. So John chapter 13, we'll start in verse 1, if you would. It's, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them until the end. And the supper being ended, the devil having now been put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things unto his hand, And that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do now thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed need not not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he washed their feet and had taken the garment and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and Master hath washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reading of your word. God, I pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of it. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. I don't want to say anything that you don't want me to. I pray now that you would um, just be glorified through everything that's said and done. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can sit. Thank you. So the Gospel of John is a unique gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's known as the synoptic gospels, meaning they're similar or they're seen together. But John is a unique gospel. Okay, John is what is known as the unique gospel. Theologians have gathered that John is 92% unique to itself, meaning only 8% of the book of John is seen in the other gospels. It's a unique book. The synoptic gospels cover 57 days of the life of Christ. John only covers 20. The synoptic gospel shows Jesus' ministry in the area of Galilee, but John shows the ministry of Jesus in Judea. The Synoptic Gospels stress Christ in his humanity, but John stresses Christ as deity. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the works of Christ, but John focuses on Christ's words and what he says. 
The synoptic gospels show the teaching method of parables, but John has no parables in it at all. It focuses on the discourses of Christ. John records far fewer historical events. The Holy Spirit wasn't writing another systematic record of Jesus' life. John is more theological in nature and more reflective than any other gospel. This could be because it was written around 90 AD, many years after the other gospels had been written. At the time that John was written, there was a false doctrine concerning the deity of Christ among second-generation Christians. It was common belief that the Christ spirit came on the human of Jesus at his baptism and then left at the crucifixion. There was a tax at the deity of Christ, and that is the reason that John emphasizes it. He emphasizes that Jesus was the Son of God, fully God and fully human, what we know is a hypostatic union. So John 13 is where we locked in tonight. It's where we started. I know we read a lot of scripture, and I'm going to do my best to get through it. The Last Supper is what Jesus' final meal with his disciples is called. During this last meal, Jesus predicted his own suffering and his own death. That's in Luke 22, which is the parallel passage of this. In Luke 22, verse 15 and 16 says, Jesus said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Not only did Jesus predict his own death and suffering in this meal, but he also used this meal to establish the ordinance of the Lord's Supper for churches. He also used this time to foretell of Peter's denial as well as Judas's betrayal. So imagine the weight that is on our Savior at this moment. This is the last meal that Jesus gets to eat before he's arrested, taken to Golgotha to be crucified. Verse 1 of our home text tells us that Jesus even knew that this hour had come. It was time for him to be crucified. I'm a very close person with my family. Okay? I have three siblings. My oldest brother is seven years older than me. My older sister is five years older than me. And then I'm number three, and my little brother is 17 months younger than me. So we're real close. We didn't grow up in a big house, though. In fact, I actually shared a room with all th- both of my brothers until my older brother moved out when I was 13. So then it was just me and Tate. I mean, at one point, I think there was a bunk bed, and then my little brother had a mattress that we slid out at the night and then put it back underneath. So I was close with my siblings, right? I shared a room with my little brother until last year when my sister got married. So we have close contact growing up, and what that's done is as we've gotten older, we've stayed close, and I'm thankful for that. I can honestly say that my siblings and their spouses are my best friends. God's blessed our family like that, and it's amazing. But my little brother Tate's now off at college in Florida. He's taking a pastoral major to pursue the call of ministry that God's placed on his life. But he came home last weekend, and we were able to all kind of get together and, of course, hang out and hang, see him. And, but he flew back on Monday morning. And as Sunday night kind of drew to a close, there began to kind of have that awkward feeling. You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, man, this is kind of the last time we get to see him. Um, just that realization that we won't see him for a few more months. There was that tension in the air. And then there came that time where we had to say goodbye right? And that's hard. He's my best friend, and I won't see him for a few months. That feeling of sadness, I can remember, just kind of was in, not depression or anything like that, just kind of somberness. Our laughing and joking turned to somberness and seriousness, and that feeling just kind of hung in the air there at the end. And I can imagine, as you would assume, I'm sure, 
that was a fraction, just a fraction of that feeling would be how that Last Supper would be. You would think the disciples, the man that they've spent the last three years of their life with, Jesus had already told them that this was, hey, this is it. This is the last dinner I'm going to have with you. You would think that it would be somber in there. You would think that there would be no laughing or just at the end of that meal, just think of the somberness in that room. I hate to tell you, but that wasn't the setting at all. Right? That's not what the disciples were doing. That's not what was going on. Instead of holding on to the last few minutes that they had with God incarnate, instead of asking Jesus just for a little bit more teaching, just a little bit more advice, can I spend just a little bit more time with you, the disciples thought that this would be a great time to start an argument. Right? It's a perfect time. It's the last time we had Jesus, so let's just argue the whole time. Right? That's in Luke 22, starting in verse 20. Two, it says, And the Son of Man goeth, as it was determined, but woe unto the man whom he's betrayed. And they begun to inquire among themselves, which of them should do this thing? And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Come on, y'all, right? Jesus is setting up ordinances for the church in the Lord's Supper, telling you about all the suffering and pain and all the anguish he's about to go through, And he even tells you that one of you, my 12 best friends, is about to betray me. And they think it's a great time to bring that good old argument up about, well, who's the greatest among us, right? And we laugh about that, but if you'll allow me, I'll show you a little bit how I think that would go. He says, someone's about to betray me. Well, Jesus, is it me? Jesus, would would I do that? Well, I mean... Jesus, it can't be me. I followed you closer than James did, right? Well, at least I didn't ask my mom if I could sit next to Jesus in the kingdom. Well, you know I deserve that seat, Bartholomew. It's my job. I'm the greatest, obvious. See how quickly that digresses? How quickly in our carnality, in our sinful minds, we will digress? I think a lot of times we judge the disciples and try and get the moat out of their eye and lose the beam that's in our own. But what was Jesus' response to their argument? What would his response be? This is in Luke 22, the parallel passage again, starting in verse 25. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they exercise authority upon them, are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, for whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth. Is it not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples, he, although it seems he had every right to. He doesn't get on them, hey, what are you guys doing? Come on, you know better than that. Jesus plainly says the kings of the world act that way. The world acts as if the greater gets served, but what have I done to you, right? Who's greater, the servant or the master? I've been a servant to you is what Jesus tells them. They had already forgotten the commandment that Jesus had already given them in Matthew 23, verse 11 and 12. But he is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus said that the greatest among you 
will be your servant. Jesus didn't just plainly put, an argument, put the argument to an end, though. He didn't just say that. Jesus showed the disciples what he meant. He showed them an act of servanthood. And this brings us to our first point, how the greatest becomes the least. The greatest became the least. That starts up in verse 3, if you'll look in our home text. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to or was going to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in flesh. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir right now, but sometimes the choir needs to be reminded why they sing praise. Jesus is God, right? There's plenty of scripture that I could sit here and quote all night about how we know Jesus is God. But look at John 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the word, the word being Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Plainly stated, the word was God, word being Jesus. Jesus is God. And the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, Jesus. All things were made by Jesus, and without him was not anything that was made. This shows Jesus as God, creator God. Jesus was there before time was, and he will be here after time ends. Jesus said plainly in John 8, 58 to the Jews, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was or was born, I am. I am before Abraham was even born. Jesus isn't just the eternal creator God, but Jesus also holds all power. All power. That's Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So Jesus holds all of the power, right? The same phrase comes. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Well, that phrase comes up yet again in John 5, 22, because Jesus now holds all judgment. For the Father judges no man, but he's given or committed all judgment unto the Son. So at this point, Jesus, full well knowing, according to verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus, full well knowing that he is eternal God, that he holds all power, has all judgment, knows where he's from and where he's going, speaking of the throne of God, Luke twenty two sixty nine parallel passage at the end says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Jesus knows who he is, where he's from, and where he's going. The Bible says he knows it. It's on the front of his mind. In this moment, this is on Jesus' mind. I know that I'm God. This is Jesus speaking. I know that I have all power and that the Father's given all things into my hand. And what does the God of the universe do in this moment? The greatest that has ever walked the earth and ever will walk the earth became the least. Jesus 
knew this and humbled himself to take on the role of the slave. Verse 4, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured the water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he girded. I know you guys have probably heard this, but what's the significance here? After walking the dirty streets of Jerusalem, the disciples didn't have Nikes on, right? They had sandals. So their feet would have been nasty. I don't know about you. I don't like feet, so that's nasty to me. Um, So what's even more gross is that Jewish cultures, their dinner tables are not like dinner tables like you and I know. Their dinner tables are low to the ground. And when you sit and eat, what you're doing is you're reclining and you're relaxing. It's a whole ordeal. Here in America, we like to just shove it in our face and then keep going, right? They sit and they fellowship and they talk and they sup together. So the people's feet would be right next to everybody else. That's disgusting. And their feet are now dirty, right? Washing of the feet was the job of the lowest slave in that day. Slave. It was considered a menial task. Since there wasn't a slave or servant at the Last Supper, one would think that one of the disciples would have just volunteered to wash the Messiah's feet, right? One would think they would be honored for that privilege of the opportunity to wash the feet of the Messiah. But the disciples were a little busy, right? They were a little busy deciding who was the greatest, who's the best. I'm not washing your feet, dude. I'm better than you. You wash my feet, right? They're a little preoccupied. So the meal began and ended without anyone volunteering to take the job of the servant. This is where Jesus steps in. First century Jews typically wore two layers of clothing. They would wear what's known as an outer robe, and they would wear that on top of an inner robe that would be worn against the skin. Here Jesus would have taken off his robe. The Bible says he laid aside his garments. He's taking off his outer robe. This outer robe would have possibly been his only earthly possession. Jesus, who possesses the universe, lays aside his only likely earthly possession. Strips himself of that. Not only did he strip himself of most likely his only earthly possession, he stripped himself as his, of his identity of a rabbi. In that day, rabbis were identified by the cloak that they wore. This is how Jesus would have been known as a teacher or a rabbi in that culture. But Jesus took that aside, removed the robe that gave him any prestige that he had to take on the role of a slave. John MacArthur said this, The rebuked, embarrassed, and chastened disciples watched in painful, awkward silence as the Lord, clad as a slave, knelt before each one of them and turned and washed their soiled feet. Can you think of the awkwardness in that room when Jesus takes on the role of a slave? Right? But who do you think spoke up? I mean, we can kind of take a guess at the guy that likes to talk, right? Obviously, it's Peter. I'm a lot like Peter. I like to open my mouth when I shouldn't, right? (laughs) Peter's never been lost for words. He's always got something to say, even really when he shouldn't. I don't know about you. I know a couple people like that. It's me. Um, Maybe I'm reading too much into the text, so take this with a grain of salt, okay? 
But did anybody else notice when Peter spoke up? It wasn't when Jesus went to wash the first disciples' feet. The Bible says in verse 6, Then when he, being Jesus, came to Simon Peter, Peter says, Whoa, 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 Lord, are you washing my feet? And like I said, this is, this is my opinion. Maybe I'm reading too much up into the text, but it doesn't say that Peter stopped him at the first disciple. He's sitting back and he's like, well, there's Jesus washing James' feet. He's washing John's feet. Oh, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. No, 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 no. They might let you do that, but you're not doing that to me. And like I said, maybe, like I said, this is my opinion, so I might be wrong. Take it with a grain of salt. But maybe he's boosting his little, who's the greatest among you? Well, you guys let Jesus wash your feet. He's not washing my feet, right? So that isn't laid out in Scripture, so take that as you will. But let's look at verses 6 through 10. Then he cometh to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said, what I do now, uh, what I do thou knowest not now. You don't understand now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus, it's not going to happen. You're not doing that and humbling yourself to me. You're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only then but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, He that is washed needeth not to save, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are all clean, but ye are clean, but not all. Excuse me. When Peter objects to the Lord washing his feet, Peter, or Jesus tells Peter that he doesn't understand what's going on right now. Like, you don't get it. Just, you'll see here in a minute. Only later, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, would Peter and the other disciples finally realize what Jesus had come to do. And that's Matthew 20, verse 28. It says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Many years later, Peter understood this when he wrote 1 Peter 3.18. It says, For Christ also excuse me, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The just died in place of the unjust. Peter finally understood what Jesus had to take our place in humility because we are incapable of ourselves. Jesus had to be our sub, our, um, submental, excuse me, our um, person that took our place, lost for words, substitute, thanks, Alex. I'm not working. So that many years later, though, in the heat of the moment, Peter, that was very many years later, right? But in the heat of the moment, Peter, without thinking, like always, rushed and declared to Jesus, you're never washing my feet, Lord. You're not going to humble yourself to me. It's not going to happen and Jesus' response is, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. Jesus' response had two purposes, okay? The first purpose was to correct Peter in his erred thought process. Peter couldn't bear the idea of a king 
to humble himself to this level. It was unheard of in Jewish and Roman culture for the superior to wash the feet of the inferior. Jesus' mission at this point on earth, though, wasn't as king. Jesus came to be a selfless sacrifice in our place. Jesus will come back as king one day, though, and every knee will bow and tongue will confess, according to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above any other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things of heaven and things of earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. One day Jesus is coming back, and guys, he's not coming back like a slave. He's coming back as king. And every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But Peter needed to accept Jesus now, according to verse 8 in Philippians, as he humbled himself. Jesus was Lord, but Jesus had humbled himself. The second meaning, though, of Jesus' response, besides to correct Peter, that response of, if I wash thee not, you have no part in me, is representative of those that don't allow Jesus to cleanse them will have no relationship with him. Washing is a metaphor that is common in the Bible used for spiritual cleansing. Who remembers the prayer of the psalmist, David, after Nathaniel had confronted him, right, for his sin? In Psalm 51, verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He needed to be cleansed from sin, washed, as the metaphor says. Only those that accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and confess their sins are cleansed by him. And Jesus said, if I wash thee not, you have no part with me. If you're not washed, if you're not saved, if you don't have a relationship with me, you will have no part in me. Peter, hearing the Lord's response, exclaimed that he wanted Jesus to not only wash his feet, but also his hands and his head. He didn't quite grasp that Jesus wasn't just talking physical, he was talking spiritual. But I have to commend him, right? He wants all that God can offer. God, don't just wash my feet, give me everything, God. Wash my hands and wash my head. But Jesus, as always, has a profound answer. In John 13, verse 10, Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. He that is washed is referring to that spiritual washed. Those that are saved don't need to be saved again. You don't have to be washed again because they're already washed. You're already clean, he says. God has already imputed righteousness to those that believe on him. We don't need that imputation again. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Those that have been saved have the righteousness of Christ covering them. Jesus told the disciples, you don't need a bath You just need to clean up your feet. 
And this refers to daily sanctification and repentance. Without that daily sanctification, as we walk through this world, our feet are going to get dirty, right? We're going to mess up. We're going to sin, but we need to wash our feet. We don't need to take a bath again. We don't need Jesus to save us because he sealed us. 1 John 1, 9, I love this verse because of who it was written to. It was written to a church, right? So we know that it's talking to believers. And he says, to believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus assured his disciples that they were clean. They had been redeemed. But there's that little phrase at the end. Ye are clean, but not all. There was one exception there. Your disciples, you're clean, but not all of you. And verse 11, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, ye are not all clean. This brings us to our second point. The greatest serves, okay? The greatest serves. So the greatest became the least. Now we get to watch as the greatest serves. John 13, verse 12 says, so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you. Whose feet did Jesus wash? The disciples, right? Who, who do we think we're referring to when he says he washed their feet? There, obviously, is the disciples. Verse 5 of our home text confirms that, right? He says he began to wash the disciples' feet. But realize what this entailed, who Jesus was washing. We already saw Peter. Jesus washed Peter's feet. Jesus actually had to convince Peter to let him wash his feet. Then in that same setting, at the end of the passage, Jesus informs Peter that he's about to deny him. John 13, 36 through 38 says, Simon said unto him, Lord, whither, thou, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. Thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Why, God? That doesn't make sense. I'll lay down my life for your sake. God, I'll follow you. Let me go. I'll lay down my life if that's what it takes. And Jesus answered and said, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me three times. Jesus, or Peter, excuse me, says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Let me come. Please, 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 let me follow you. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. He thinks he's that guy. Remember, he's the greatest one that didn't let Jesus wash his feet. He's the best, right? Jesus, let me come. Please, I'll follow you to death. Jesus, please. And I can imagine Jesus' face when he looks at Peter at this time. Maybe the Savior kind of looked up in Peter's eye and calmly stated, really, you're going to die for me, Peter? No, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times before the rooster crows this morning. Three times you're going to deny me, Peter, before the morning even comes. So after we see Jesus say that, imagine Peter. What? Right? He thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. He thinks he's the best disciple and Jesus just told him, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Imagine the hurt pride of Peter. Imagine the humility that he just got. 
He thought he would never deny Christ. And Christ tells him, you'll deny me three times by the morning. That had to have broken Peter to some extent. He must have been some form of distraught. But our Savior, like he often does, gives some words of encouragement. The very next verse starts chapter 14. He says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times by morning, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus comforts Peter in that moment. I love you in spite of the fact that you're going to deny me. Don't let your heart be troubled. While Peter did deny Christ that morning three times, just like Jesus had said, he eventually did follow Christ to death. Church tradition says that Peter was martyred. During Nero's reign, Peter was set to be crucified for preaching the gospel. Church tradition also states that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So we see that Jesus first washes Peter's feet in spite of the denial that Peter's about to do. But next, in, in my opinion, a little bit harder, he washes Judas' feet. That's the next person that Jesus washes. Because Judas was still in the upper room at this point. He was still at supper when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He hadn't left yet. He hadn't left yet. Jesus tells him to leave in verse 21 of our text. Oh, excuse me. Um, yeah, 27, excuse me. So this is at right here at the beginning, washing the feet. He starts in verse 5, and he doesn't leave till 27. Judas is still in the room. So do you think Jesus just skipped over him? Well, here, I'll wash your feet, James. Bartholomew, let me wash your feet. Not you, Judas. Next, Judas, let me wash your feet. Is that in character with our Savior? Is that in his character? No. Of course the Savior didn't skip Judas. But the Bible says that his presence bothered Jesus greatly. The Bible says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit in verse 21. And Jesus said, thus, he was troubled in the spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. The word troubled here comes from a form of the verb terasso. And terasso is a very strong Greek word that's used figuratively to speak of severe mental or spiritual turmoil. Severe mental or spiritual turmoil. Jesus was bothered greatly by this presence. The word describes the disciples' terror at the Lord walking on water, that word terasso. It also describes Zacchaeus' fear when the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the temple. It describes the disciples' fear when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. The anguish that Jesus had at the tomb of Lazarus along with the Savior's distress in the face of the cross. Jesus was greatly troubled at the presence of his betrayer. Greatly troubled. His friend that he had been with for the past three years, the friend that he loved, even enough to wash his feet as a slave, Jesus loved him. Can you imagine the depravity of Judas? To sit there smug and let Jesus the Savior of the universe, wash your own feet, knowing that you're about to sell him out for some easy cash. The Bible says, in a parallel gospel, that when Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me, 
Judas looks Jesus in the face and says, Lord, is it I? And Jesus didn't answer him. The smugness of Judas Iscariot to sit there as the Lord of the universe washes his feet just so he can blend in and keep the act up. John MacArthur wrote this, Several things troubled the Lord. His unrequited love for Judas. Judas's ingratitude for all the kindness that Jesus had shown to him. The malevolent presence of Satan who would shortly possess Judas. The fearful fate that waited Judas in hell and the knowledge that Judas' betrayal would lead him to the cross. Jesus knows all things sitting there, and he knows this, looking at Judas in the face as he washes his feet. All of those things most likely on the forefront of the Savior's mind. Another commenter had this to say, In the present passage, Jesus' emotions are shown to be in a state of sheer turmoil. His whole inner self convulsing at the thought of one of his closest followers betraying him to his enemies. Yet in all of this turmoil and all of this mental stress, spiritual turmoil, Jesus, the incarnate God, washes the feet of his betrayer. Washes the feet of the man that will deny him. And this brings us to our final point this evening. Number three is Jesus set the example. Jesus, the greatest, set the example. Look back in your text at verse 12, if you would, please. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me master, and Lord, and ye say, well, for I am. If then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye shall also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you that the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent him, or greater is he, neither is he that is greater than he that sent him. For if you know these things, happy or blessed, are ye if you do them. Jesus, after finishing washing the disciples' feet, grabs his garment and returns to the table. He had taught them what he desired to teach them, right? He wasn't focused on the truth of spiritual cleansing that he had, he had given them a little nugget, a little side truth, but that wasn't the intent in this washing of the disciples' feet. He was focused on the example of humble, self-sacrificing love. Love is humble, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, that love isn't puffed up, but it esteems others better than themselves. Jesus set an example for the ones that he loved. John 13, verse 1, tells us that Jesus loved his disciples. It says, Jesus knew that his hour was come, uh, that he should depart out of this world. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his disciples so much that toward the later part of this chapter, Jesus says in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. How? As I have loved you. That ye love one another as I have loved you. So also love ye 
one another. And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you, you should really do this. He commands, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you at the end of chapter 13, that he, they should love one another as he had loved them. How did he just show them his love 20 verses ago? By humble service, by serving, by removing all pride, although Jesus had every right to be prideful. Removing his only earthly possession, most likely, that identified him as a rabbi and teacher. He says, you call me master and you do well. Like, that's true. But he laid that aside, girded himself with the talent, and took the role of the lowest slave in that culture. Jesus doesn't just tell us that we're supposed to love one another, though, right? It says, by our love, one for another, we'll know our disciples. Hey, when people come in here, they should feel the Christian and brotherly love, right? Because by that love, they'll know that we're disciples of Christ. Praise God, when you come in Lighthouse, it's not, right? There's some love. There's greeting one another. We're showing the love of Christ. But he doesn't say just love other Christians. He had already told them a little something about loving people. Matthew 5, 43 and 44 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Does Jesus practice what he preaches? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Do good to them that hate you. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ, and Jesus just washed his feet. Jesus is not a hypocrite. He pre practices what he preaches. He served as the lowest slave to a man that was going to sell him out for a few pieces of silver. Christ gave us an example, though, that we should do as he did. This doesn't mean, though, that we're going around washing each other's feet. Praise the Lord. That's a cultural thing, right? He says, do as I have done, not what I have done. Take the example of my humility. Take the example of self-sacrifice in love. And do as I have done. Love one another as I have loved you. The example is this. There should be nothing below us. Example, pastor's not here so I can brag on him. You'll catch pastor out flipping classrooms and all that. And it's like, preacher, like, that's not your job. Like, go do other something. Else. But it's not below pastor, right? He'll do that. He'll, he doesn't have that pride because... There should be no task that we're too good to do, right? If the literal God incarnate could take the job of the lowest slave to serve the ones that would desert, deny, and betray him, are we too good to serve sometimes? Does it sometimes hurt our pride a little bit to do the menial tasks, the tasks that the servant should do, right? Is there anything below us? Anything that we're too busy maybe to do? 
There was a crucial lesson for the disciples and for us to to learn. If the Lord of glory was willing to humble himself to take on that role of the slave, how could the disciples do anything less? He said, I'm your master and I do this to you, so I expect you to do this. How could we do any less? Jesus had already said, why do you call me Lord if you don't do the things that I say, right? That's Luke 6, 46. He says, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Jesus here could have said, why are you calling me teacher and Lord if you're not even going to follow the example that I have set for you? Why call me Lord? You say that you follow me. You say that I'm your king, but you don't even do what I do. How can we say that we're followers of Christ if sometimes we let our pride get in the way of service? When Jesus had every right to be prideful but humbled himself to the death of the cross, which, right, we don't die for people, but we can take the form of a servant. We can serve, right? Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Master here means teacher. So if we call him Lord and teacher, can we follow his example of self-sacrificing service and love? Are we better than the Lord of the universe? That's not what Jesus says according to verse 16, though. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Jesus has sent us out, right, to preach the gospel. We have been sent. We're not greater than the one that sent us. I'm sure you guys know that, but it doesn't hurt to hear it sometimes. I need to hear sometimes, you're no better than anybody else. Go wash the toilets, right? You're no better than anybody else. Go scrape the gum off the bottom of the kids' chairs. Take the form of the lowest servant, right? Because who's our example? Christ. Verse John 2, 6 says, He that abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. He, being the believer, that says he abides in him, being Christ, ought to walk as he, being Christ, walked. We must live as the example that God gave to us, that Christ gave to us. Christ gave the example of serving others in the humility of, of love. The greatest became the least. And this is just one way that we can imitate or be followers, mimeti, mimics of Christ. We can serve. There's nothing too small for us. I'm so proud of the congregation here. We have people here literally like every day of the week serving. And I know I'm preaching in the choir, but sometimes it's good to be reminded that service is what's expected. A new commandment I have given unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Serving one another. Who's someone that we could serve in our lives? Who's someone that we could be more like Jesus to and take the lesser role? I've been married two months now. I'm figuring that out a little bit, okay? It's a little joke. But where can we say, you know what, Jesus, I want to be a little bit more like you. Jesus, I want to take the role of a servant and serve my coworker at work that I really don't like and that isn't really nice to me. Bless them that curse you and do good to those that hate you, right? 
That's what Jesus' whole message of loving God and loving others, the whole law hangs on that. And if we've lost sight of what really loving others is like, then we've lost sight of half of the law. We've lost sight of that. If we can't figure out what true biblical love looks like, then we've lost sight of one of the biggest commandments that Jesus gave to us. So as we draw to a close this evening, maybe the Lord's convicted you as he did me as I was studying. Is there anything below you? Is there anything that we are too good to do? If Christ could take the role of a slave, then we can take the role of a servant. Where could you serve at to imitate Christ? There's plenty of opportunities to serve here at church, whether it be kids' classes, nursery workers. We have Fall Family Day coming up, and that takes a lot of help. How can we better serve others? When can we serve the least of these? Because when we serve the least of these, Jesus said we're really serving him.